Today, when you grab a bite to eat, you may want to take a second to think about the work that goes into most of your food. There are many, many workers, busy workers, that are responsible for the food we enjoy eating. The estimate is about two-thirds of our agricultural crops are dependent on honeybees. So two-thirds of our food, all that fresh fruit and vegetable nuts that we see in the shops, two-thirds of that is dependent on bees. My name is Naral Chokchedin. I'm a research fellow at the I3 Institute, which is the Institute for Infection, Immunity and Innovation at the University of Technology, Sydney. In this episode of Think Sustainability, we are investigating the threats to honeybees and the wider impact this has on us, and looking at the impact Australia's recent bushfires and floods are having on beekeepers. You're listening to Think Sustainability. I'm Marlene Even. Dr. Naral Chokchedin from the University of Technology, Sydney, has been researching the medicinal purposes of honey for over 10 years. So it's safe to say she has a few in her pantry. I think I've got probably like 22 different types of honey in my pantry at home. I'm very lucky though, I do have lots of beekeeper friends that I visit and I get it straight from the beekeeper. You've probably heard of campaigns to save the bees, But why exactly are they in danger? Over the last few years, I think a lot of the general public has become very concerned that our bee populations are under threat, that their health is declining. And there are lots of different factors that contribute to this. Things like climate change, of course, will affect the populations of bees, uh, the use of pesticides, a lot of environmental conditions there as well. So a lot of people have now heard of colony collapse disorder, which is basically the biggest threat to the honeybee populations around the world. It seems to be much more prominent internationally than in Australia. And part of that will be because we we don't have some of the diseases that they see overseas. Colony collapse disorder is when the majority of worker bees leave the hive. It's a perplexing phenomenon where the worker bees suddenly disappear, leaving behind the queen, a few nurse and infant bees and plenty of food. So why are the bees abandoning their hives? Well, the United States Department of Agriculture states no scientific cause for colony collapse disorder has been proven and that research points to a complex set of factors involved. But as Neral says, this is much more prominent overseas than in Australia. One concern is that the varroa mite could impact Australia in the future. So there's a a mite called the varroa mite that carries a lot of viruses and other infectious diseases. And once that comes into a country and affects the bee populations, it's very hard to get rid of. We're very lucky in Australia we don't have the varroa mite yet, but it is just a matter of time. So it's more about being prepared rather than being oblivious and thinking we're never going to get it. We will get it on our shores one day. And it's about being prepared for those kinds of diseases. The concerns surrounding honeybees in Australia differ from the concerns overseas. We're also very careful about pesticide use, uh, which seems to be a very big issue internationally. They do tend to use pesticides quite uh, readily internationally, more so than we do here. And things like using antibiotics to treat 
their honeybee populations as well. When, when bees get sick, just like humans, you can administer certain drugs and antibiotics are a type of drug. But that does also seem to have an effect on the health of the bees. And we're very strict about antibiotic use for honey production or any kind of beekeeping here in Australia. So we do have some advantages. But of course, we have different factors that international uh, beekeepers might not have. Things like drought and bushfire are very dominant here. And they might not be issues that other beekeepers have to deal with overseas. The Black Summer bushfires in Australia began in late 2019 and went on till the beginning of 2020. So we, we had a very nasty bushfire season last year. Everyone will know the 2020 bushfires and remember that for such a long time. But leading up to that, we were in drought for many seasons before that. And just like all the other farmers, of course, beekeepers are affected. Their honeybee populations are affected. Their hives are affected. And we lost thousands of hives in those bushfires and the droughts leading up to the bushfires. The Australian Honey Bee Industry Council estimates that in New South Wales, over 9,809 hives were burnt and over 88,000 hives lost their bees during the bushfires. In their annual report, they estimate the honey production in New South Wales will be at least 30% below the long-term average for probably 10 years, adding that some of the burnt areas will not recover for up to 20 years. So it's not an easy industry to regenerate after such a catastrophic event because you think about the forest that was destroyed and the public lands and the national parks, all of that forestry that we lost as a result of the fires, floods, drought, whatever else. And you think, well, that's the, that's the food source for the bees. So beekeepers are a little bit different to other farmers where they don't necessarily own the land where they keep their bees to graze or in this case forage. Beekeepers rely on access to places like public lands, national parks, state forests. That's where they keep their hives for honey production, for pollination and just to generate their own income and look after their bees. So not only are they losing their hives physically, but they're also losing access to the food source for the bees. So whatever hives they've got left, they've got very limited food sources. What action do we need to ensure the sustainability of bee populations in Australia into the future? I think just spending time, so much time with the beekeepers in New South Wales mainly, but also around Australia, I can see how passionate they are about their bees. For them, it's not just a business. These are, they feel very responsible for looking after our bee populations and for providing food security for our country. They're the backbone of Australian agriculture, I would, I would argue. One man who knows the beekeeping industry well is Bruce White. Bruce has been a beekeeper for around 70 years. I've been involved in bees since I was at school. One of my schoolmates in primary school had a hive of bees. They intrigued me. I went round and you know, sat at his place and watched the bees go in and out. He worked as an apiary officer for over 40 years at the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries. He's involved in the Amateur Beekeepers Association in New South Wales, which is the largest beekeeping association in Australia. And he's a local and international honey judge. 
Uh, in 2011, I was awarded an Order of Australia Medal for services to the Australian beekeeping industry. I always kept bees myself. So while I you know, advise on beekeeping, I'm also heavily involved in keeping my own bees so that I can get an appreciation of best management practices to increase production and to understand the flora and how bees are managed in Australia. The recent bushfires not only physically burnt many hives, but the smoke and heat had an impact on the bees. A lot of bees were lost because of the smoke. They couldn't orientate properly because of the smoke. So something like 88,000 hives affected by, by smoke. The impact of the recent bushfires and floods on the beekeeping industry is devastating due to the loss of a precious resource. So the recent floods and bushfires in New South Wales were quite devastating you know, for the beekeeping industry because 70% of Australia's honey comes from eucalypts and it was mainly the you know the eucalypt forests that were destroyed you know by the major bushfires on the south coast and the north coast Bruce says the beekeeping industry is migratory but the bushfires have affected some of the beekeepers movement it's common for beekeepers to move six or seven times a year you know, over up to a thousand kilometers because the fires, a lot of beekeepers were just jumping from one spot to another thinking they were safe and they'd ship bees and they'd find weeks later there's going to be a major fire, have to pick them up and, and ship them again. So that, you know, certainly helped. In some cases, you know, if they lived where there was a huge uh, amount of devastation with the fires, they've had to ship their bees much greater distances. And the largest cost in beekeeping is the transport of hives. It's very expensive to transport hives and it's done at night over, you know, fairly long distances. Traditionally, beekeepers hope to be able to work within two, 300 kilometres where they live, but if your area's been, you know, burnt out, you may now be having to go four or 500 kilometres. One of the reasons the industry is migratory is due to the sporadic flowering of eucalyptus trees. Because of the main flora we use being 70% eucalyptus and the fact they only flower every third or fourth year. So beekeepers get together a series of what we call bee sites where they can place hives to utilise the flora that's available. And the best beekeepers are the best botanists. So they understand flora, when it flowers, how long it's going to flower for, does it yield nectar, does it yield pollen. Keeping in mind that some of these eucalyptus trees only flower every three or four years, Commercial beekeepers need to choose and pay for multiple sites to migrate their bees to. And those sites you may only use every third year, depending on the location of the site. So the devastating effect of the floods and the fires, and particularly the fires, was that those businesses have had you know, land available to them, which they paid for every year for many years. And if they've been severely burnt, they may not be able to use that land for another 10, 15 years. While bees are recovering, Naral explains that bees need a varied diet and may need supplements to boost their health and immunity. So they collect pollen for their protein source and they collect nectar for their carbohydrate source. That's what feeds them and the nectar they bring back to the hive and that's what eventually turns into honey. There's a lot of research now looking at supplemented feeds for bees. Again, just while we're getting our forests back up to scratch or if there's limited floral supply. 
The Australian beekeeping industry roughly creates $147 million in revenue in their honey and beeswax production. But the unrecognised contribution of pollination to the economy is about $14.2 billion annually. Paid pollination services are a key revenue for beekeepers. Commercial beekeepers can rent their hives to farmers to pollinate crops for a few months. Some examples include crops of almonds, apples, avocados or blueberries. There has been an increase in demand for paid pollination services due to the growth of the horticulture industry as well as the reduction in feral bees. This is according to research by AgriFutures. You know, bees are significant pollinators of agricultural crops and you know, I say bees are the foundation of agriculture because if there's no pollination provided by honeybees, uh, it means that uh, it's going to be very difficult to feed the population. One example of these crops is almonds. The almond industry is the single largest purchaser of paid pollination services. Currently, we need just over 180,000 hives for Australia's production of almonds. But the Almond Board of Australia estimates they'll need access to 300,000 hives by 2027 to meet their growing demand. Almonds bloom for a few weeks in July and August and rely 100% on insect pollination to produce fruit. While other insects such as native bees can pollinate almonds to some degree, Naral says honeybees are one of the most efficient pollinators. When you think about pollination, it's kind of like intense farming. So you introduce a whole bunch of bees into a place at once, an almond orchard, for example, and they spend weeks there pollinating those almond orchards. So how will we get the populations of native bees to the same level that we've got honeybees? Because not all native bees live in colonies. A lot of them are solitary, so they live by themselves. They're not social insects like honeybees. So it's about the management of that as well. So we, yes, we can rely on our native pollinators to pollinate some of this, but we would not have the quality or the quantity of those foods that we rely so heavily on the honeybee populations to pollinate. So could this increase in demand for bees lead to issues of overstocking. Overstocking occurs when too many bees are placed in an area with potentially not enough pollen or nectar to feed them all. Bruce says the bushfires are leading to overstocking. So they've lost all that country, which then of course is leading to overstocking in other areas. You can overstock land with bees as you can overstock land with livestock. But you don't necessarily see that in beehives unless you look inside the beehive. And that's been one of the big impacts of the fires and the floods. Where there has been something available, beekeepers have obtained sites in those areas from crown land or from um, private property. And the intensity of bees in those areas has been so great. The country's been overstocked. So the yield of honey you know, per hive is much less than it would be normally when there's not such a heavy stocking rate. Bruce is concerned about the increasing number of hives on each site. Uh, when I started you know, beekeeping in the 60s, 
uh, people had trucks, they were called they were Dodgers, and they carried about 70 hives, or V8s, and most beekeepers had Dodge trucks that carried about 70 hives that they placed in one location. Because of you know, the cost of fuel and economics and labour and all that, beekeepers have been forced to have much larger trucks. So it's not uncommon now for beekeepers to be carrying you know, 150 plus hives on a truck. While some beekeepers have smaller trucks to transport their hives, Bruce says if the beekeepers have to move long distances, it becomes an economic nightmare to use smaller trucks instead of larger ones. Beekeepers are reliant on public land to provide flora for their bees with around 45% of beekeeper sites on public land in New South Wales. The peak industry body for New South Wales commercial beekeepers and the national peak body both list their number one priority is to improve floral resource access. In New South Wales, beekeeping is allowed in some areas of national parks if it is compatible with the conservation values of that park. But with the Black Summer bushfire burning 5.68 million hectares of land in New South Wales, the beekeeping industry have been pushing for access to unburned national parks and public land. It seems to be a constant battle, these licences, for being allowed to put their hives in certain places. So I think there's a real push now from the industry to government to say, please let us put our bees here. And it's, it's good for the environment. It's good for biodiversity in the forests as well. But also they need to look after their bee populations because without bees, we're all affected because bees pollinate something like two thirds of the food that we eat. So we are really reliant on our honeybee populations. A 2008 government inquiry into the future development of the Australian honeybee industry found that beekeepers' access to public lands has been declining due to the increase of public lands being listed as national parks, nature reserves or wilderness areas. When the state government transferred a lot of state forests or parks, the Beekeeping Association, New South Wales Labor Association, was able to negotiate with the government to have access to those sites where there'd been previously a state forest that beekeepers had regularly utilised. So the case with national parks is that uh, beekeepers can still use national parks that were previously used by beekeepers as a state forest, provided they pay you know, for a particular area every year. The European honeybee is listed as an invasive bee, by the Australian government. Honeybees are probably one of the few exotic or introduced species that actually have a benefit in the environment. They do help with biodiversity because they do pollinate so many different plants and they can pollinate much more efficiently than some of the native pollinators. And in terms of the competition, there could be competition, of course, for the floral resources. That's their food source, just like the native pollinators as well. So, of course, there could be competition for those food sources. But the beauty of the national parks or public lands is that they do have such a diverse flora that's available. There are so many eucalypts, over 200 species of eucalypts, that are good for both honeybees and native pollinators. The Federal Department of Agriculture, Water and the Environment state feral European honeybees can outcompete native insects and animals for floral resources. 
but there is insufficient evidence about the interaction between European honeybees and Australian biota. It's a contested topic. Bruce has both native bees and European honeybees in his backyard. I've got a native beehive in the backyard that I've had probably for 40 years. I've got honeybees in the backyard. There's no interaction between the two species at all. And normally native bees, you know, work smaller flowers than honeybees do because honeybees are too big to get into the nectaries. Naral believes there should be a focus on diseases. On the flip side, I would argue that maybe we should be looking more about the different types of diseases that honeybees carry versus the native pollinators carry and whether they are cross-infecting each other. So again, from a scientific point of view, it is very interesting for us to look at are they, are they swapping diseases and should we be more conscious of that when we are taking honeybees into public lands where native pollinators are dominant? Um, and there is a lot of research looking at those kinds of diseases as well because, again, we don't want any of those populations to be sick. We want them all to live together in harmony. In a bid to support the beekeeping industry recovery and build resilience, the New South Wales government pledged $1.9 million in funding. The funding includes six support and research programs coordinated by the University of Sydney. One of these projects is led by Dr. Naral Chokchedin and Professor Liz Harry from the University of Technology, Sydney. Their research is about using honey as a health food to fight gut infections. So I'm a microbiologist. I'm really interested in understanding how bacteria cause disease and how we can stop them from basically trying to kill us. And that's really how I got into honey research because honey has this long history of use as a medicine by almost every culture that's had access to it. And it wasn't until we discovered modern antibiotics and started using those that honey was replaced, basically. So it was, it was the dominant medicine up until the discovery of antibiotics. But we know that antibiotics are failing today. But apparently that's not the case for honey. A lot of infections can't just be treated with antibiotics anymore because we're seeing a rise in what we call superbugs, which are these bacteria that fight off the killing effects of the antibiotic drugs. But honey still works. It kills these superbugs. And we don't really know why it works. And that's what was, that was our scientific interest, to figure out why does honey work and can we make new drugs that work in the same way. But throughout this research, it became clear we don't really need to make new drugs that work the same way. Why don't we just use honey more? Naral's research project is looking into how honey can impact our gut health. You now, our gut microbes are very linked to our disease or health state. They seem to influence a whole lot of things, you know, whether you get fat, if you suffer from certain allergies, asthma, of course, any kind of gut condition or gut disease, but even mental health issues. So our gut microbes seem to be very important for our own immunity and our health. And eating certain foods called prebiotics changes the balance of our gut microbes for the better. And we found that, yes, actually, honey is working as a prebiotic. And now the new project is looking into this a bit further. What exactly is happening when we eat honey? How is our gut changing? Can we use honey to target certain diseases or conditions that start from having this imbalance in the gut? And the beekeeping industry was really excited about that. By establishing the scientific evidence of honey as a health food, the project aims to increase the value and profile 
of Australia's non-premium honey. You know, I can see that by adding these medicinal benefits to the honey, it also helps the beekeeping industry because we're associating health or medical or therapeutic benefits with their product and they can charge more for their active honeys depending on what kind of activity it has. When you say it's a, a, a prebiotic, is that the regular honey you buy off the shelf? Is it manuka honey? Like, what does that mean? It's a good question. So lots of honey is different. So honey is different because bees will visit different plants to collect the nectar. And that's what actually gives us the different flavours of honey. So when you see on your honey jar, this one says yellow box, this one says iron bark, this one says spotted gum. They're the different plants or the different gum trees that the bees have visited to collect the nectar. And that's what the honey flavour is. It's the floral source of the, the honey. So we did, in our initial studies, we looked at a bunch of different Australian honeys to say, is this particular effect linked to a floral type? So is yellow box better than spotted gum at boosting your gut health? And it looks like it's not really linked to a particular type, which is really different for other honey research. So when we're looking at the antibacterial activity, there are certain honeys that are much, much better at killing bacteria than others. So that's why Manuka honey is so famous. It's because it's a very, very potent antibacterial. So if you put that on a skin infection or a wound, it will clear that much quicker than any other honey will. But in terms of eating it for your gut health, so eating it as a prebiotic, it doesn't seem to matter which honey it is. And we tested honey straight from the beekeepers. We've tested a few supermarket honeys. They all seem to have an effect. They're doing something slightly different in the gut. So some of them might be boosting the beneficial populations of bacteria in the gut. Others are keeping the potentially harmful populations of bacteria really low. And others are actually promoting the production of beneficial compounds in the gut. So things that can help us to fight off disease. So the honeys are doing something slightly different, but it didn't matter which type we tested, they all seem to be doing something positive in the gut. How can we help the Australian beekeeping industry? Tap into your local beekeeping community if you're interested in bees. Planting pollinator-friendly plants is always an excellent option if you don't want to have anything to do with bees. Just make sure that they've got some food if they come to visit your house. And there are lots of guides available as well. Uh, there's a, an organisation called the Wean Bee Foundation who prints and provides lots of different pollinator-friendly guides for different regions of Australia so you know what will grow in your suburb or in your area and you know that it will be feeding some of the native and honeybee populations. The other thing we can do if we want to support our beekeepers because healthy honeybees need good beekeepers to look after them. So our managed populations really do need experienced beekeepers. And the best way to keep our beekeepers in business is to buy Australian honey. So look for that 100% Australian honey. It doesn't matter if you get it straight from the beekeeper, from the farmer's market, the health food shop, the supermarket. It really doesn't matter. As long as it says it's 100% Australian, know that your money is going back into that beekeeping industry. Think Sustainability is made possible with the support of 2SCR Radio, the University of Technology, Sydney, and is heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Think Sustainability is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Sustainability wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Marlene Even. Thanks for your company.